Her ability to acquire languages did not stop with Maya. Doña Marina and Aguilar worked together as an interpreting team through the fall of Tenochtitlan. But by the time Cortes launched his expedition to Honduras, Aguilar was out of the picture, and Doña Marina was functioning as a trilingual interpreter, translating directly between Spanish and Nahuatl in central Mexico and Honduras, and between Spanish and Maya in Aklan and the Paten. The Nahuatl historian Don Fernando de Alva Ixtlio Xochitl claims that she had learned Spanish in a few days, which is surely an exaggeration. But there can be no doubt that her dependence on Aguilar was short-lived. Her unique gifts were as yet unrecognized, however, when the Chontal Mayas gave her as part of a package to the Spaniards. The 20 women, together with male slaves, ornaments, and other material goods, were bribed to Cortes to get him to move on, to leave the Maya area and go prey on Montezuma. Resorting to euphemism, Calero says the women were given to Cortes para hacer tortillas. Once in Spanish hands, the women were summarily baptized and distributed to provide the men with sexual services. This juxtaposition of a Christian sacrament with rape is jarring to our sensibilities, but the 16th century Spaniards, Bernal Diaz included, were quite frank about it. A piece of myth is that prior to this experience, Doña Marina's indigenous name had been Malinali Tenepal. We owe the Tenepal to the Nahuatl historian Chimalpain, who added a marginal note to his copy of Lopez de Gomara that her full name was Marina or Malintzin Tenepal, Marina Malintzin being her Christian name and Tenepal her lineage name. Tenepal may be a construction developed in hindsight. Dene means that which possesses an edge or lip. And according to the 16th century lexicographer Fray Alonso de Molina, the metaphor tenet, tlatole, one who possesses a lip, one who possesses speech, refers to one who speaks vociferously. The postposition pal adds the sense of by means of. Hence, Tenepal would be close equivalent of La Lengua, the Spanish sobriquet for Doña Marina. The idea that Aguilar, the only one who could have done so, engaged the group of women in conversation in Maya prior to their baptism, learned that the calendrical name of one had in previous life been Malinali, which is a word for grass, a Nahuatl day sign that would have been meaningless to him, and chose Marina for her as a close approximation, is profoundly unlikely, although that story has been accepted as gospel since the 19th century. In the aftermath of combat with hostile Chantal Mayas doing all they could to deflect the Spaniards from their shore, there was hardly time to get acquainted. As soon as the sacrament had been bestowed, Cortes divvied up the women, and Marina fell to one of his lieutenants, Alonso Hernandez de Puerto Carrero. 
It was only later, on another shore, that Cortez discovered her unique usefulness and reclaimed her for himself. The Spaniards' first encounter with Nahuatl was on the coast of what they named Veracruz. Aguilar, who had served the party well in Yucatan and Tabasco, was suddenly faced with an unfamiliar language. It was then that Marina was observed speaking with the most recently encountered indigenes, since she and she alone could translate for Aguilar, who could then translate for Cortez, she was transformed on the spot from Puerto Carrero's drudge to Cortez's pearl without price. The man who had asked Doña Marina in Nahuatl to identify the leader of the Spanish forces were emissaries from Motexoma, sent by him to the coast to investigate the strange beings who had arrived from across the sea. They brought with them painters to make a record for their ruler, and so it was that Cortez and Doña Marina sat for their first portrait not long after they met, and perhaps only hours after Cortez had taken her back from Puerto Carrero. Word went inland to Motexoma that the Spaniards were on their way to his city, with a Nahuatl-speaking woman called Malintzin. The Gulf Coast of Mexico was not then, nor is it now, a mainly Nahuatl-speaking area. The first mainlanders Cortez and his men encountered on their home turf were Totonacs, whose language was equally unfamiliar to Aguila and Doña Marina. But Doña Marina had the presence of mind to ask for Nahuatl interpreters, who were readily available, since the Totonacs, like so many Mesoamerican peoples, were tribute payers to Motexoma. Here the chain of interpretation grew attenuated to the point that it is a wonder any communication was accomplished at all. Cortes spoke in Spanish to Aguilar, who translated his words into Maya for Doña Marina. She in turn translated from Maya to Nahuatl. The local interpreters then translated from Nahuatl to Totonac. The process was then reversed for conveying information back to Cortes. Among the Totonacs, the Tlaxcalans, and the Cholulans, Doña Marina was set the task of assisting Cortes in playing people off against each other, misleading them to keep his potential enemies off balance, and acquiring allies through a mix of sweet talk and intimidation. The duplicity was mutual, and according to Bernal Diaz, it was in part through Doña Marina's perceptiveness that the Spaniards avoid traps laid for them as they relentlessly pressed on to the interior in search of Motexoma. The characterization of her as Malinche, the traitoress, turns on just such circumstances. Lopez de Gomara, Bernal Diaz, and Cortez himself all concur that the Cholulans planned to entrap the Spaniards within the walls of their city and slaughter them, but that a noble woman of Cholula revealed the plot to Doña Marina and urged her to flee from the Spaniards to the protection of the noble woman and her family. According to Bernal Diaz, the woman offered immediate marriage to one of her sons. Doña Marina, both sources say, pretended to go along with the scheme in order to learn more details and then informed Cortez. Bernal Diaz adds that Doña Marina had also, through bribery and astute questioning, learned of the plot from two Cholulan priests. 
Cortes then seized the initiative and with the assistance of his Tlaxcalan allies, slaughtered the Cholulans in their own plazas and temple precincts and sent Motec Soma's agents back to their ruler with a message of bloody intimidation. Again, we must beware of taking these men at their word. The story of the Cholulans' intended treachery serves the Spanish case well, and the implication of Motec Suma in the affair serves to justify the way Cortes made an example of Cholula. But while we may question whether the plot was real or intended by Cortes, there is no doubt that a terrible slaughter befell the city and blood would seem to be on Doña Marina's hands. Yet we must ask whether, if she were indeed invited to change sides, Doña Marina had any reason to trust the Cholulans. She was not one of them. Perhaps the woman who urged her to save herself was deceiving her to separate Cortez from his interpreter. Or if the woman was sincere in her proposal to make Doña Marina her daughter-in-law, for Doña Marina that would have meant being handed on to yet another strange man. It does not appear to me that a question of ethnic loyalty can legitimately be raised here. At this point in Mesoamerica, the indigenes had no sense of themselves as Indians, united in a common cause against Europeans. They identified themselves as Mexica, Tlaxcalteca, Chololteca, and so on. As she was none of these, how could Malintzin be a traitor to all or any of them? By all reports, she saw her best hope of survival in Cortez and served him unwaveringly. Rather than the embodiment of treachery, her consistency would be viewed as an exercise in total loyalty. The problem for a Mexican national identity after independence was that the object of her loyalty had been a conquistador. From Cholula, Cortez and his party continued on up over the saddle between the volcanoes Istak Siwat and Popocatepet, from whence lay revealed the valley of Mexico with its great lakes and shoreside cities. They headed directly for the city that lay out in the lake, connected to its edges by causeways. All his efforts to divert them having failed, Motec Soma finally came forth from his city, as the Tlaxcalan lords had done, to meet Cortez on the road. According to the Nahuatl writers of the Florentine Codex, Motec Soma addressed Cortez and his interpreters in flawlessly honorific speech, drawing on all the devices of polite rhetoric, all the metaphors of stewardship and hospitality. They represent Cortez's reply transmitted through Malintzin as utterly plain and devoid of honorific markers. Then, according to the writers, the Spaniards touched Motec Suma. For this, the writers used two paired Nahuatl verbs and examined him freely with their eyes, another two Nahuatl verbs. For Motec Soma, a ruler in whose presence his subjects never raised their eyes from the ground, this was unimaginable. But no physical blow could have fallen as hard as the handful of Nahuatl sentences the writers say came from Cortes through Malintzin. We can no more trust the speech Sagun's assistants place in her mouth than the one Bernal Diaz did, 
but we can certainly appreciate the enormity of the situation. The Mesoamerican societies she knew, Nawa and Maya, observed elaborate rules of behavior, and by word and deed she was implicated in heart-stopping violations. Nor was this initial meeting the most challenging of her interpreting chores. Once within the city, Cortez used his interpreting team to demand that a chapel to the Virgin Mary be set up on top of the city's main pyramid. And it also fell to Doña Marina to advise Motexoma he was being taken into custody, a prisoner of his unwelcome guests. From the time Motexoma was forced to reside among the Spaniards, Cortes and his lieutenants spent a great deal of time whiling away the hours with him. They learned to play one of the Mesoamerican games of chance, Motexoma's treasures passing back and forth among them. Once to demonstrate their easy superiority over their subjects' war canoes, they built and rigged sailboats and took their royal prisoner out skimming over the expanses of Lake Texcoco. During all these hours of contact, a Spanish boy who served Cortez as a page was absorbing Nahuatl and became a second conduit of information between the Spaniards and Motexoma. Bernal Diaz relates that he made use of the boy, Orteguia, to importune Motexoma for what he called a very pretty Indian woman. And indeed, Motexoma responded by giving him a noble woman with a dowry. She was baptized Doña Francisca, and we do not hear of her again. The more Orteguia came to understand Nahuatl, the more alarmed he became, according to Bernal Diaz. Present but ignored discussions between Motexoma and other lords from the Valley of Mexico, he knew enough to know that he did not understand what was going on. At his call, Motexoma brought Doña Marina and Geronimo de Aguilar, to whom Motexoma issued a warning that the Spaniards should withdraw immediately if they valued their lives. According to the account, Orteguia, having come to share Doña Marina's direct knowledge of their situation, was reduced to helpless tears in dramatic contrast to Doña Marina's steadiness. During this uncertain time, Bernal Diaz also tells us that Motexoma proposed a marriage alliance by offering one of his daughters as wife to Cortes. Cortes, we are told, explained that he could not enter into marriage with the girl since, as a Christian, he was permitted but one wife, and he already had one. But he accepted the girl into his safekeeping. Various sources seem to show that Cortes, in fact, took three of Motexoma's daughters into his keeping. They were baptized Isabel, Maria, and Marina, and Isabel bore Cortes a daughter. By Lopez de Gomer's reckoning, by the end of his life, Cortes had fathered four children by his second Spanish wife, one by a Spanish woman to whom he was not married, his son Martin by Doña Marina, and three daughters by three different Indian mothers. One of these mothers was Motexoma's daughter. His sexual activities, we see, were not confined to Doña Marina, much less to his marital bed. The situation of the Spanish party within Tenochtitlan was precarious and grew more so over time. Cortes had to leave his forces there under his next-in-command, Pedro de Alvarado, 
in order to deal with the challenge of a new group of Spaniards who had arrived on the coast. And by the time he had settled the matter and returned with reinforcements, Alvarado, later notorious for his brutal conquest of the peoples of Guatemala, had committed slaughter within Motexuma City, a slaughter that echoed the Cholula massacre in ferocity but had none of the prior action's strategic value. On the contrary, it undermined what little authority the Spaniards commanded by virtue of holding the person of Motexoma. As the situation deteriorated, Motexoma was killed. There are conflicting accounts of how it happened. Spanish sources claimed he was struck by a stone thrown by one of his subjects. Indigenous sources say he met his death at Spanish hands. Then insecurity turned to rout as the Spaniards attempt to flee the city under cover of night and rain. According to Bernal Diaz, Doña Luisa, daughter of the Tlaxcalan lord Xicotencat, who on baptism had been given to Pedro de Alvarado, and Doña Marina were placed under the protection of 30 soldiers who were also responsible for a group of valuable hostages. The attempted withdrawal was immediately discovered, and in the dark and wet, a ferocious attack descended on Spaniards, prisoners, allies, and horses. When the survivors regrouped at a safe distance from Tenochtitlan, they found that Doña Marina and Doña Luisa had escaped with their lives, as had some of Chicotencat's sons. But Doña Elvira, daughter of the Tlaxcalan lord Mashishkatsin, had perished together with some of the sons and daughters of Motexoma. Doña Isabel was not among her dead siblings, however. She survived the conquest and three Spanish husbands to eventually die in 1551. Now began the siege of Tenochtitlan. Cortes attacked over water with ships and artillery, while smallpox raged within its walls. The city that had enchanted the Spaniards with its beauty and, and orderliness was ravaged and reduced to stinking rubble. From time to time, the Spaniards demanded capitulation in exchange for an end to the destruction. A witness testifying in court proceedings years later related that during the siege, a Spanish soldier who had learned to speak Nahuatl was interpreting, but the Aztecs insisted on having Doña Marina instead, and Cortes had to send soldiers by boat to the city of Texcoco to fetch her before negotiations could go forward. By high summer 1521, Tenochtitlan no longer existed. Its last ruler, Cuauhtémoc, gave himself up to Cortés, who immediately began through Doña Marina and Aguila the same sort of flattery and expressions of affection he had previously laid on Motexoma. The end would come out the same. After an extended period of captivity, Cuauhtémoc would die, and there would be conflicting accounts of his death as well. Only now... After two years of sexual use in Spanish hands, was Doña Marina pregnant? Having been in the thick of armed conflict and having avoided death by sacrifice, drowning, and smallpox, Doña Marina gave birth to Cortez's son. Young Martín would remain his potential heir for a long time. At age six, he would accompany his father to Spain. His father would successfully partition for his legitimation. The boy would become a knight of Santiago, and eventually, according to Cortes' family history, he would die fighting Moors in the War of Granada. 
but the birth of a half-brother, also Martin, deprived him of the marquisate he would otherwise have inherited. In what circumstances Doña Marina lived between the summer of 1521 and the autumn of 1524, who attended her through her pregnancy and assisted at the birth of her son, we do not know. Cortez at this time was involved in domestic difficulties. His wife, whose existence he had invoked to block a marriage alliance between himself and Motec Soma, came from Cuba and took up residence with her husband in his new palace in Coyoacan, south of the massive construction site where Tenochtitlan was being rebuilt as Mexico City. She arrived in August 1522. Before the year was out, she was dead, and Cortez was under suspicion of choking the life out of her with her own necklace, although charges were not brought against him until seven years later. By then, Doña Marina was dead, too. In the autumn of 1524, when little Martin was just beginning to walk and talk, much too soon for him to form a lasting memory of his mother, Cortez called on her to interpret on an overland trek to Honduras. The child was left in the care of one of Cortez's kinsmen, and the expedition began. At the very beginning of it, Doña Marina was married to his lieutenant, Juan de Jaramillo, in a tantalizing vignette, Lopez de Gomer remarks that Jaramillo was drunk at his wedding, and Cortez was criticized for letting the union take place, since he and Marina had a child together. It was after this that Bernal Diaz has Doña Marina make her statement to her relatives in Tabasco about her satisfaction with her good fortune to be Christian, the mother of Cortez's son, and the legitimate wife of Jaramillo. Then it was off with horses and pigs, musicians and jugglers, trunks and firearms into a rainforest world amenable only to canoes and blowguns. Men and animals wallowed and drowned or perished of hunger. The royal hostage Cuauhtémoc, who had been brought along, was put to death for unclear reasons. According to her grandson, whose probanza sought to maximize her contribution to the conquest, Doña Marina had uncovered a plot against the Spaniards by Cuauhtémoc and his followers. The Chantao Mayas claimed credit for the discovery by their leader, Pashbolon Acha of Alcalan. Bernal Diaz says two Aztec hostages came forward to warn Cortez, while Lopez de Gomera, repeating Cortez's own account, says the plot was revealed by a note written on paper in hieroglyphs. In view of all this conflicting testimony, we cannot be sure Doña Marina denounced Cuauhtémoc, but she undoubtedly interpreted it as a summary examination and trial, and Bernal Diaz states that she assisted the Franciscan friars in confessing him before his execution. Cuauhtémoc, the chronicler says, at the last spoke bitterly to Cortés of the degradation to which she had been brought. For his words to reach Cortés, Doña Marina would have had to translate and deliver them. When the expedition reached the ruler Kanek in his fastness of Tayasal, the Maya lord advised Cortez through Doña Marina that they should make straight for the coast and continue their travel by sea. But Cortez persisted in traveling overland. 
By the time the survivors of his folly reached the goal in Honduras, they found that the punitive mission they were on had long since been made pointless by the death of the rebel Cortez was after. A great loss of life and nothing much had been accomplished. But Doña Marina, whose powers of survival had again carried her through while others expired on every side, was pregnant again. And on or soon after the sea trip back to Veracruz, she gave birth to Jaramillo's daughter, who was baptized Maria. It is a testimony of Doña Maria, given more than 20 years later, that tells us what little is left of her mother's story. Doña Marina did not long survive the birth of her second child. Within the year, Jaramillo remarried. This time his wife was a Spanish lady, and Doña Maria grew up a mestiza stepchild in a Spanish household. When her mother had been married to Jaramillo, Cortez had endowed the marriage with the encomienda of Hilo Tepec. Some 20 years after Doña Marina's death, nearly as many years after his remarriage, Jaramillo died and left Doña Marina's dowry not to their daughter, but to his Spanish wife. This outrage touched off a lawsuit that simmered for years until the sides agreed to split the inheritance and give up the litigation. Conclusion There is nothing more to Doña Marina's personal story. Within ten years of falling into the hands of the Spaniards, she was dead. She had survived longer than many Indian women and men during that fatal decade, and like so many other women who lived and died anonymously, or nearly so, she gave birth to mestizo children. She did not have a chance to be with her children, and they were deprived of any memory of her. Contrary to the romantic story, she did not go to Spain, was not presented at court, did not have a palace in Chapultepec, was not alive in the 1530s. She was not the only Indian woman impregnated by Cortez, and surely he was not her love slave. It seems to me that their relationship was pragmatic in the extreme. They needed each other to survive, but all the power lay with Cortez. When she was given to him, she may have been very young, truly in the morning of her life, as Calero put it. Clearly she was not barren, since she eventually bore two children. But there was a significant lapse before she became pregnant for the first time, a convenient one in terms of her night and day interpreting duties. If adolescence seems incompatible with her accomplishments as counselor and negotiator, one need only consider the case of Eva, a young woman of the Khoikhoi, who played a similar role in mediating between the indigenous peoples of the Cape of Good Hope and the Dutch in the 17th century. Bilingual by virtue of having been taken as a child into the household of the Dutch governor, Eva served as advisor and interpreter in settling a war between the Khoikhoi and the Europeans, and only thereafter went into seclusion, apparently on the occasion of her first menses. Fecundity, when it finally arrived, was Ava's undoing and led to her abandonment by both the governor's family and her Khoikhoi relatives. Sakakawea was also an adolescent when she walked across the continent with Lewis and Clark. She and her co-wife had been acquired while still children by the expedition's Canadian-French interpreter, Toussaint Charbonneau, a man with a taste for very young Indian women. 
All these competent, cheerful, enduring young interpreters can be viewed as child survivors of chronic sexual assault. To reiterate, Doña Marina's inevitable fate was rape, not the making of tortillas. She had absolutely no choice about whether she would be sexually used and very little control over by whom. When she was given to Cortez, she had no one to turn to, nowhere to flee, no one to betray. She was not Aztec, not Maya, not Indian. For some time already, she had been nobody's woman and had nothing to lose. That made her dangerous, but it says nothing about her morality. With no hope of escape from a group of men, in the face of inevitable rape, Doña Marina managed to do what today's women's survival books advise. Exploiting her only asset, her multilingualism, she succeeded in attaching herself to what primatologists would call the alpha male, that is Cortez, who would not willingly share her with others. When he did relinquish her to Jaramillo, it was with a legitimate wedding and an income. She worked hard at making herself one of the men, ever ready day or night to serve, always helpful and outgoing. Bernaldias characterized her as cheerful and without embarrassment. For a woman in her situation, any other strategy would have been suicidal. Today, in Mexican popular imagination, her reputation has fallen victim to blame the sexual survivor syndrome. Like many a woman who has so suffered, her own character has come into question. Her survival become distasteful, her collusion with her rapists reprehensible. In many ways, her fate resembles that of Patty Hearst, a less gifted young woman who fell into the hands of minor league terrorists, was sexually brutalized, survived, and ended up in prison. But if we are in the blame the victim business, there is another place to look. What put Doña Marina into the hands of strangers before Cortez ever came on the scene? In Book 12 of the Florentine Codex, she is represented as haranguing the citizens of Tenochtitlan from a rooftop. Throughout his account, Bernal Diaz praises her cleverness and ability to manipulate people through her talk. This is a far cry from the ideal described by Alonso de Sorita. He writes, Many daughters of rulers never left home until the day of their wedding. A ruler's daughter went about in the company of many elderly women, and she walked so modestly that she never raised her eyes from the ground. She never spoke in the temple, save to say the prayers she had been taught. And she must not speak while eating, but must keep absolute silence. The maidens could not go out to the gardens without guards. If they took a single step out the door, they were harshly punished, especially if they had reached the age of 10 or 12. Is it possible that by the time she reached the age of 10 or 12, this particular noble daughter had proven herself constitutionally unfit for such a life. And lest her vociferous taintly, her lingua, that would not be quiet, bring shame and ruin on them all, her harsh punishment had been what Bernaldius describes, to be secretly given away by her own family and mourned as though dead. We cannot but speculate. Doña Marina's invaluable multilingualism distinguished her from the other women who fell into the hands of Cortez and his men. 
She was not branded on the forehead, gambled for, fought over. She survived to be made the legitimate and dowried wife of our conqueror, and her name in all its forms has survived four and a half centuries. Without her services, the European conquest of Mexico would inevitably have come, but not as soon and perhaps not to Cortez. Yet in another sense, her fate was like the other women's. She was caught up in an adventure, the likes of which the world has not seen again. She was impregnated by two different men and contributed children to the first generation of mainland mestizos. Before middle age, her life was over. This is no love story, no story of blind ambition and racial betrayal, no morality play. It is the record of a gifted woman in impossible circumstances, carving out survival one day at a time.